I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans chapter 1 to verses 26 and 27. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we are continuing with our verse-by-verse sequential reading and study of the book of Romans. I also want to remind you that Paul writes to the church that is situated in Rome, the ancient capital of the Western world, a city of great wealth and sophistication of learning, a city of great culture. And he's writing to a church that is often fighting within itself and trying to understand how to see the Christian religion in the grip of society. And here in chapter 1, from verse 18 all the way through 320, we have Paul's discourse on sin. And I had someone ask me, you know, why does Paul do this? Why does he spend so much time devoted to the topic of sin and sinfulness, and I think an easy way to understand this is he is trying to make a blanket statement that excludes no one about the desperate state of our hearts and our need for the grace, the compassion, and the saving mercy of Jesus. It's in essence to say every single person has a sin problem And that problem can only be taken care of through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so verses 26 and 27 are in the grip of that. And here Paul is touching upon the state of a Gentile society, one that the Romans are part of themselves, being a church outside of the bounds of Judea. So let us read the word of God. And then go to him in prayer that he might bless the reading and the teaching of it. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural relationship... For that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural relationship of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to be a people who would receive your word. O Lord, a people who would submit ourselves in mind and in heart to it. O Lord, a people who wouldn't highlight our Bibles with black markers. O Lord, but a people who would desire simply to glorify and honor you as we study your word. O Lord, as it teaches us about our hearts, about the state of society, 
Lord, as it teaches us about our neighbor. Oh, Lord, in the great need of the sinful hearts of humanity for the redemption that can only come through the Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens when a society abandons the worship of God? That's a huge question. It's one that, as we look around ourselves today, we may have answers that are experiential. Answers that are evidenced in the culture around us. What happens when a society abandons the worship of God? Well, things begin to slowly self-destruct, to slowly degrade, and to fall apart. Churches more and more progressively weaken their testimony. More and more churches are caught in the grip of scandal. More and more churches collapse under the weight of a world pushing in. Fewer and fewer people are in pews. Fewer and fewer Christians share meals. Fewer and fewer men and women profess the name of Jesus. Fewer and fewer children hear the free offer of the gospel. Marriages grow increasingly cold and unhealthy. Husbands turn against wives. Wives turn against husbands. Sacrificial servant leadership is sacrificed upon the altar of independence and a desire for self-fulfillment rather than the keeping of marital vows. Divorce goes through the ceiling. Homes are broken. And children have hearts broken. And there's a strange other consequence. There begin to be fewer and fewer children. Fewer and fewer children. The result of healthy marriages. The result of husbands who love wives and wives who love husbands. As the family fractures, society begins to slide into moral decay. And then, after all of its media continually puts a pinprick one after another in the great dam of the views of the world and the immorality and the stream of its teaching, at once society is emboldened and we see the beginning of an all-out campaign to teach to depict and to make normal that which is evil and to call it good. An attempt to take morality and to redefine it after our own depiction, after a depiction that has nothing to do with human flourishing, nothing to do with what is revealed in the scriptures. And even the children who are left are the ones that are the direct recipients of the final wave of an attack as if a great wave is crashing against them and they're too weak to swim upstream against it. 
And whenever you hear this, you may think to yourself, well, pastor, this sounds awfully familiar. This sounds very contemporary. But do you know that what I'm speaking about is actually the context that the Apostle Paul wrote into? He wrote this to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago. To a church that was struggling in a secular and increasingly secular society. To the world of Gentiles. To a church that was asking the question, how can Christian faith live alongside a society that is wholesale giving itself over into immorality because their hearts are hardened and distanced from God. You see, in the teaching of Romans 1, Paul is advancing this single idea that he's going to spell out in clarity in a few chapters, and it's this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even the great city of Rome, even all of its citizens, with all their wealth, with all their learning, with all their sophistication. And here in these few verses, he is walking us down the stairs of the degradation of sin and its effect on society, on people, on families, on normal, regular, everyday you and I. In specific, in the verse that we have this, this morning, we have the sin that is the result of idolatry. Last week, as we studied the end of the thought process of verses 24 and 25, was that man exchanged the truth about God for a lie and served the creature rather than the creator. And then verses 26 and 27 give the result of that. Or what flows out of idolatry. And to put it into one word, unambiguously, it is homosexuality. Paul touches on the sin of homosexuality which harms marriages, families, relationship with other men and women, and ultimately our bodies. And so three points I want us to consider this morning from these two verses are firstly, degrading passions. Degrading passions. Secondly, enslaving desires. Enslaving desires. And then in the third place, destructive errors. Destructive errors. Degrading passions, enslaving desires and destructive errors. Again, as we come to our verse in verse 26, this is on the heels of what he's just said in verse 25. This is ultimately in two verses, the result of a life lived denying the truth of God and exchanging his true worship for worship of our own fashioning. That is to say, idolatry. Again, I want to touch upon something briefly, and that is this. 
At times we hear the language of idolatry and we collapse it into an ancient ideal. It's the sort of thing where people are bowing to idols, specifically made of metal or wood fashioned after the image of men and creeping things and animals. Sometimes fashioned in a way that's almost indistinguishable altogether. We think of ancient religions like the religions that are mentioned in the Old Testament where they would worship the Asherim or these carved posts and poles. Or maybe the the worship of Baal, a small idol of a master deity, one that rules over uh, people with a harshness. Or maybe even you think about modern idolatry, you think of Eastern religions like Hinduism or Buddhism and the idols of the false divinities that are worshipped within those systems of teaching. But idolatry can also simply be the idols of the heart. The things that we build up that reflect who we are. The things that we want. Whether it's a rational idolatry that accords with our thoughts. The things that confirm and affirm who we are. Or how we feel comfortable living or being or see ourselves in a trajectory of life. That's one form of idolatry. Another form of idolatry could simply be the worship of money or the things that come from money, the material wealth. We can open up the ideal of idolatry quite wide. I don't think that that's what we have time for this morning, but to just simply press back and say that idolatry is any form of false religion that we fashion for ourselves to be devoted to. Whether it's made out of wood whether it's simply the ideal in our head and our hearts and our minds that affirms who we are rather than who the God of heaven is. And it's out of idolatry. This is the next step, the logical progression down the stairs of degradation that we get to verse 26. For this reason, for the reason of idolatry, God gave them up to degrading passions. Your translation, if you're reading in the ESV, may say dishonorable passions. That's one way to translate the word. But the idea of degrading passions, as is reflected in the translation of the New American Standard... I think touches upon it more directly to the word. This is, as it were, passions that are causing the heart, the affections, the mind, the desires to fall apart. To be marred, to be affected, not to just be dishonored, not to just be shameful, but rather to fall apart and to change from one form that they once were in to a different form that is lesser. There's change happening. But I don't want you to simply pass on and move on and get our focus directly on the degrading passions immediately. I want you to let these words ring in your ears. I want you to wrestle with this. This is the second time that we're being told God gave them over to something. 
Does that shock you? He let them do what they desired to do without restraining them. Hands off. This means that what Paul is teaching is this. Every sinner that commits a sin is doing what they want to do. A society that he describes like he does here is doing what it wants to do, what it wants to do. And Paul is saying in the second place that this is a judgment of God where he just says, if you desire to do it, I will let you do your sin because you have refused to worship me and rejected a relationship with me and will not give thanks to me. God gave them over to what they wanted to do. He gave them over to their sins. He gave them over to their sins and the effect of it. And again, I ask you to check your heart. Does this startle you? This is the second time of three times that the same phrase is used. Does this startle you? And I'm afraid that for some of you, it doesn't. And you're sitting there this morning and you just shrug your shoulders and you say simply, it sounds like freedom. And it may be that for some of you, you simply have the capacity of an immature teenager who ignorantly desires the heavy burden of independence even at their own expense. Isn't that what teenagers do? They want to get the driver's license. It's not because mom and dad don't provide for them, but they want the independence even at the expense of the danger. They want their life according to their rules now. And simply reading this and hearing that God says, okay, you want to do it? You do what you want to do. Some people say, well, that sounds like freedom. Sounds like liberty. But friends, I think it's a thing entirely opposite to it. I'll unpack that more as we go through the sermon, but to put it simply, it means that God no longer intervenes. That his judgment is to no longer call them away from danger, but allow them to go directly into it. That they're left to experience the full weight and effect of their own sins as their sin and its effect is a judgment against their sins. You understand what I'm saying? His punishment is to simply say, do what you'll do and you'll experience the terrible effect of it. That's terrifying. It ought to cause you to take pause and to simply say, that's nowhere I want to ever be. A place outside of and distanced from the regular help and the intervening mercy of the all-powerful God of heaven. I want his intervening grace in my life. Degrading passions 
dishonorable passions. That's what they're given over to. And then Paul expands that and opens it to give it some description. And it could be translated, I think, quite well here, even their women. Even their women, it begins there. Even their women exchanged natural relationships as did also their men committing shameless acts with other men. What's the degrading passion? The desire of the heart that the Lord gives them over to without mincing words, it's homosexuality. It's lesbianism for women. It's homosexual, same-sex relationships for men. And Paul says that these passions, these desires that are then uh, met with action, that these are degrading passions. What does that even mean? I want to be careful this morning. I want to to be careful firstly to say that I don't think Paul is just isolating a select slice of society. I don't think that he's playing identity politics. I don't think that's a category for him. He's not saying there's an LGBTQ lobby and, and this is an issue in society. Let's preach against it. Let's have a bully pulpit against this group of people. No, he's speaking about society in general. He's speaking about the potential of the heart of any sinful man or woman to commit acts in their flesh with the same sex that degrades who they are as a person and who they are in relationship. Now that may come as a huge shock to you. This isn't about orientation. This is about the act of sin. This isn't about identity. This is about offense towards God and its effect on the natural relationships he's intended. It degrades, he says. It tears down. It dishonors what was meant for honor. And one of the ways that it does it is that as women exchange natural relationships with men, that's the understanding, for relationships with other women, and men exchanging natural relationships with women for other men, the most natural understanding of this is that it degrades the natural relationship with spouses a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband. Again, I want to tell you that Paul's not saying that these are people who all over the whole course of their life are experiencing same-sex attraction. No, he's speaking about an entire society, an ancient Roman society that experienced marriages ripped in two because of the lust of the heart and the degrading passions of the heart to go after other women and other men at the expense of a relationship that was already had. That's to say that this is the decay and the degrading of marriage as an institution. Why is this so profoundly impactful? Well, it is because of the relationship that a man is to have with a woman and a woman is to have with a man that she was made as a companion appropriate to him and for him for his encouragement, for his fulfillment, for her encouragement, for her fulfillment. What is the first thing that Adam says of his wife whenever he sees her? 
wow. <laughs> she is pleasant to his eyes. This is the natural relationship. This is the thing that Paul again and again insists upon. That it degrades the natural relationship that a man is to have with a woman within the bounds of marriage. It may mean that the man or the woman never got married, right? It's no less the fact that men and women biologically and relationally complement, encourage, and bless one another within a relationship of intimacy in the bound of marriage. It degrades marriage. Even their women, with the expectation that they, the mothers of a nation, would probably be the last to go into this sort of sin. There's another degradation, is that it degrades natural relationships with other women and with other men. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This is impacting and changing the basic aspect of how a man relates to another man in fellowship and friendship and companionship and how a woman interacts with a one, another woman in fellowship, friendship, and companionship. It changes that. How so? Because attraction and eroticism is then placed into a relationship where it has no natural place. And what this does is it impedes the regular exchange of friendship and fellowship under the weight of the question, am I attracted to him? Is he attracted to me? Did he do that because of some erotic attraction? Am I feeling something? Am I thinking something? You see, it impedes and it intrudes upon a relationship that's simply supposed to be a relationship where men can interact with men on the grounds of there being men and women interacting with women on the grounds of there being women without any sort of pressure sexually whatsoever. A free space away from sexuality and a free space away from that sort of emotion or attraction or eroticism. Where a man can simply be a friend with another man and walk down the street and people don't ask the question, are they a couple? Or the same for two women who go shopping together. How about in the way in which they confide? Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy, David and Jonathan, how are they to confide? How are they to engage with one another as men to men? It's impacted. Or the idea of simply confiding and understanding with one one another and enjoying one another's company without the emotional or sexual pretense of homoeroticism, if that thing's almost, it's a piece of the past. So it degrades natural relationships with men to other men and with women to other women. I just simply want to also say that there is no argumentation here that someone who experiences same-sex attraction cannot have a regular, normal relationship with somebody of the same sex. 
I don't know the depths of their hearts, but I am simply saying this is a piece of how that relationship gets inevitably changed. And it is one of the the key things, the key differences between a relationship with men to women and women to men outside the bounds of marriage and why that is oftentimes a strained situation and one where some of the more intimate or private aspects of being confidants, where that's changed. So it degrades, degrades natural relationships, and it makes them something other than what they were intended to be. Secondly, Paul describes what seem to be enslaving desires. In verse 27, he follows up the language that God gave them over with this language. Verse 27. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, the ESV says and translates, or they burned in their desire toward one another. They were inflamed. This is the language of of a forest fire, as it were, a thing out of control. Something that presses in on the heart, something that that presses in on the mind, something that changes the way in which people interact. And Paul says that it is desire-based. That they're burning or flaming desires. Desires that impact the mind and the heart that the person who has them has very little control, if any, over. It's just burning. And an overwhelming effect on the heart of men and women. And and what does he say? That they were consumed, that they burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. Likewise to the state of the women. When you say, well, pastor, I'm listening... I'm hearing what you're saying, but I don't know that I quite follow the idea of enslaving desires. It's this. They are having affections. They are having desires they cannot control. That are overwhelming to them. Whether in their taste, their delights, their affections... These desires are consuming, overwhelming, burning, inflamed, so that the person who has those desires towards the same sex cannot control them, can't turn them off. It's just the experience. Now, isn't this the testimony? I mean, it is, it is. If you've ever had a homosexual friend or someone that you, maybe a colleague, and you've had conversation, if you've ever talked specifically on, on the topic of homosexuality or maybe even read books or heard testimonies of people who describe it, they'll say, I didn't choose to be this way, right? I don't want these attractions, but I feel them nonetheless. 
it seems to be that Paul is touching on exactly that. Affections and attractions that are enslaving, these things that control the heart, that control the mind, that control the eyes towards relationships that are not natural, that aren't reflected in the physicality of the body or in the relationship between a man and a woman. Burning desires. Now here again, I want to confront this idea. After all, didn't we already read that God gave them over? They have freedom to do what they want to do. Freedom to live how they want. Freedom to love who they want. Freedom to be in relationship with whoever they want. Freedom, right? It's freedom. But is that really the picture that's being painted? Is it really freedom? It seems like enslavement to me. It seems like an overwhelming weight. A perversion on the heart of humanity to pursue its own desires and delights. You're free, conditionally. But to one thing, to one sort of thing, to one experience... And here Paul is touching on it as same-sex attraction and homosexual, homoerotic desire. And so what he's saying is they became unable not to pursue the satisfaction of the deepest desires of their hearts. And you say, what's the point? Again, I want to point to you this, that it is downstream. This is removed from an earlier commitment, and that was a commitment against a relationship with God. A commitment that said, I will not worship you or honor you or give thanks to you. This is downstream from a heart that is apostatized, a heart that doesn't love God or want to love God, and it is a heart and a mind that doesn't have access to the one thing that happens in the middle of worship. And what is that? The gracious ministry of word and sacrament and prayer. Yes, they're enslaved. Yes, they've been given over to a life of silence to do what they want to do, to pursue the delights of their own hearts. And friends, I don't know about you, but I don't want any desire to have this sort of power over me. I don't want my heterosexual desire To have this kind of power over me. I don't want to have my desire for food or drink to have this kind of power over me. I certainly don't want my, I don't want to have a homoerotic desire to have this kind of inflaming power over me. I don't want that. I want to live a life within freedom, a life that can pursue righteousness against godlessness. And ungodliness and unrighteousness. But whenever Paul describes this impact, this effect of idolatry in a society that's gone away from the worship of God and the honor of God, he's simply saying 
they're in essence a people enslaved to the appetites of their sinful hearts. As you move on in the passage of Scripture, the last thing that Paul describes regarding this is destructive errors. At the close of verse 27, following the idea of being consumed with passion or desires for same-sex relationships that commit shameless acts, he says that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Some people hear that and they say, well, that's very harsh language. It's not very tolerant. That sounds terrifying. It sounds harsh. Sounds not accepting. Sounds ungracious. I want to say that in the very beginning of this, what Paul is laying out is a state of the heart of man that's honest, that's in need of grace. He's not outlining a life that is damned and condemned or that has a sin or like homosexuality is some kind of a sin that's higher than other forms of sin or that it's something untouched by the gospel or by the blood of Jesus or a thing that a person is locked into the whole of their life. It's just their orientation. It's just their style of life. It's just whatever, whatever, whatever. Rather, he is saying this clearly for what point? So that in the coming chapters, he can point them to a life of freedom and a life of redemption and a life of grace with Jesus. The language he uses here just reflects Leviticus chapter 18, 22. It's the same legal language that you have there. But what is it? What's the due penalty? I want to be careful. Paul doesn't outline this, doesn't spell it out. But there are a few things that we can simply say that we can deduce from the passage carefully. The first, irrespective of homosexuality, is that it is that they lose a relationship with God. What's that bound upon? The heart that refuses to worship the Lord. They've put off a relationship with God. But what, what, what's another penalty or punishment for the error? The loss of godly companionship with a spouse of the opposite sex. A person who was created for their joy and their fulfillment. Of a regular relationship with somebody made to compliment them in mind and in body and in heart and in soul. That's what you give away. That's a penalty. The loss of what was intended for blessing not being enjoyed because of a relationship outside of the natural design of God for the blessedness of a person, of a man or of a woman. Another is that it's a loss of the godly joy of natural child-rearing and the blessing that it is to the life of people and to society more broadly. 
no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we think about it, no matter how much bizarre science we put into place in the flesh of humanity, the idea of surrogacy, of a man bearing up a child, he's just not naturally given the capacity to do it. Or a woman to conceive with another woman. It just naturally isn't the physical reality. The loss of a godly joy in the giving of children. And then another. The loss of godly companionship with the same sex that results in fraternal relationships and regular healthy friendships. And you may be saying to me, you know, Pastor, you're just coming up with stuff out of thin air. These are three prayer requests that I heard a year ago from a same-sex attracted celibate gay man who at Thanksgiving and Christmas said, please pray for me for these pains in my heart. These aren't things I make up. This is just my own imagination. This is a man confessing to a lonely life who would delight in these things, yet in himself and because of his own attraction feels that these things are completely outside of his belonging. What else could this mean? I want to be very careful. I don't want to get into... Lots of different arguments about disease and things of that nature. But I want to mention something else that's derived from Wikipedia. And it's this. Mental health in same-sex attracted persons has radical difference to mental health within heterosexually attracted persons. This is a commonly held statistic that's not something I made up, Google it if you like, that suicide rates are three times higher with homosexual youth than with heterosexual youth. And why is this a thing even taken regarding youth and not with adults? I don't know. But it's a statistic Why? Disordered relationships, not knowing how to have regular relationships, these things being affected, relationships person to person, boy to boy, girl to girl, parents to their children. I don't want to look past something that's a reality, that the rate of suicide and suicidal ideation or having ideas of taking one's life, that these are things that are just only uh, uniquely attached to uh, the disordered mind and relationships, but also bullying from heterosexual people to homosexual people. That's reality. Where heterosexual people don't have an ounce of grace or compassion or love or know how to communicate in a good or right way. But that's not the full measure of it. Because those suicide rates continue into adulthood. They continue even in the midst of homosexual affirming communities. It's a regular capacity that's seen constantly even within homosexual marriage. 
What's one of the words that Paul uses again and again? They exchanged. They exchanged. This is an exchange from what would be natural to that which is unnatural, what would bless to that which would destruct, decay, or harm. And why preach this? Because it's verse 26 and 27. Not to be a bully, but to speak clearly about the danger of what it is to be in a society that has completely moved on from the gospel of God and has completely forgotten the relationship that we have to our creator to honor and glorify him. That you and I might check our hearts and might understand our neighbors and might care for them and also might have hope and grace and mercy and compassion to other people who really don't feel attracted or love in the same way or to the same people that you do. So that you and I as a church can have a more meaningful ministry and a more meaningful guard over our own hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for scripture. Lord, even hard scripture. With its weighty clarity. That confronts us and our opinions. And our society. Oh, Father in heaven, I do pray that you would guard us against any error. Lord, anything that I lacked clarity regarding or anything that I added to and according to my own opinion, Lord, or offense. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us to be a church that would distinguish the need of every heart, every man, every woman, every child, for a vital relationship with you. And that, Lord, we would regularly and constantly hold the free offer of salvation before our own eyes and that we would extend it to a watching world without exception. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.